Second Chronicles chapter 20. First Second Samuel, first Second Kings, first Second Chronicles, and chapter 20. Just reading the first four verses only at this time. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verse 1, it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. King Jehoshaphat was facing a tremendous battle. Uh, three great armies rose up against him. This was a triple whammy was about to hit him. They say things never come in ones, they always come in threes. Not what we say. Well, for him, they certainly did. He was hopelessly outnumbered. Uh, the odds were incredibly stacked against him. And yet, in spite of all of that, he overcame this great battle in his life. And he won this battle. And because of that, then, it is a great encouragement to us this morning, or at least it should be should be encouraged and should be inspired to know that no matter what assails us in life, that we can have the victory, that we can win the battles. And there are battles that do assail us continually. Some as battles in their health, some as battles with their employment, some as battles with relationships or battles in their finances, all kinds of struggles and battles Come against us. But we need to know today that we can prevail and that we can win. And so, first of all, we want to look this morning at this battle that Jehoshaphat was facing. And let's see how he won the battle. And then let's see if we can learn any lessons from him and how to handle the struggles that we face in our daily lives. And all of us face them, no question of that some much more serious than others at the time. But nevertheless, in this life, it is unavoidable. We will face struggles and battles. First of all, the first thing is we must recognize our enemy. Notice the first two verses that we read, that he pinpoints, he identifies his enemies, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, the people of Mount Seir. And it was fairly obvious. I mean, it was plain to see. He didn't have to struggle and wonder who was coming against him. They were out there. They'd set themselves in array. The spies had come back. He knew exactly what he was facing. Now, you and I don't always know that. We don't always see the battle. We feel it. We sense it. We know what's going on. But we don't always see it physically. And sometimes it's difficult to identify, but identify it we must. 
you and I need to understand today that our battles, the ones that we face, often it's not flesh and blood that we're fighting against. Often the battle is spiritual. And there is a greater enemy than flesh and blood that comes against us. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so out there beyond our physical eyes and beyond our physical senses, uh, oftentimes that's where a battle rages, spiritually speaking. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant. Be sober means be self-controlled, be disciplined, be vigilant, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And so we have an enemy, a real live enemy out there. And oftentimes he comes against us. Second Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshy, they're not ordinary but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so, there's two things can be our enemy. Well, there's actually three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But let's just narrow that down a little bit this morning. Let's put it into two categories. First of all, the devil, for sure. The devil can use the circumstances of life that is a lot the common lot of all men, to come against us. Or he can orchestrate things in our lives to come against us. So we need to be very aware that we have an enemy and that he works overtime often to come against particularly the child of God. That's not to make us afraid. It's just to make us wise and to know where our enemy is coming from and who her enemy is. Because if you don't know that, you'll be forever fighting against flesh and blood. You'll be ever fighting against people. And oftentimes, it's the spirit behind the person where the real battle is. Then we need to be aware, not just of the devil, not just of a spiritual battle, but we need to be aware of our own personal attitudes. Sometimes we are our worst enemy. Sometimes we are the ones who struggle and cause problems that shouldn't be happening, but we cause them to ourselves. Hmm. Let me read to you just something from the book of James. I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation. James chapter 4. Verse 1, New Living Translation puts it this way. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires that war within you? You want and you do not have, so you scheme and kill to get it. 
You're jealous for what others have and you can't possess it. So you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You want only that which gives you pleasure. And so James is saying here that oftentimes in our lives that we are the cause of our own problems. We are the cause of our own battles sometimes because of our attitudes, because of how we look at things and think about things and speak about things. And so James's warning is there. Now over in Galatians chapter 5, Verse 14, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if instead of showing love among yourselves, you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. So I advise you to live according to your new life in the Holy Spirit. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The old sinful nature loves to do evil which is just opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, and your choices are never free from this conflict. But when you are directed by the Holy Spirit, you are no longer under subject to the law. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your lives will produce these evil results. Sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other things, other kinds of sins. Let me tell you again, as I have said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, He will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here there is no conflict with the law. And so we need to recognize our enemy. And often in battles, the devil is our number one enemy. But sometimes, maybe more often than we like to admit, sometimes it's our own foolish attitudes and actions that causes problems and cause all kinds of battles to ensue. And so first of all, recognize your enemy. Secondly, turn to the Lord. Now, let's just read that verses 3 and 4 again of Second Chronicles 20. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now notice here that Jehoshaphat's fear, and it was a genuine and real fear, but it had a positive effect. 
Now, in life, very often fear comes upon us. A dread. A, a feeling that something bad is about to happen. You ever had one of those times? You get that phone call, you get that letter, whatever it may be, or you don't get the phone call, or you don't get the letter, and suddenly a fear wants to grip you, a dread comes upon you. Now that's common to all of us. There are no exemptions to that. But it's what you do with that. After that comes upon you, it can either stay upon you, and you can live in that fear, or you can have a positive effect by it. And this is what happened to Jehoshaphat. He felt the fear. He felt the dread. He saw what was coming onto him. He knew what was going to happen in the natural. No wonder he was afraid, but, but he turned it around and he did some positive with it. He sought the Lord. He prayed and he invited the whole nation to pray with him. He turned to the Lord. See, for most of us, fear has a paralyzing effect, does it not? It puts us in retreat. It diminishes our resolve. It cripples our faith. It debilitates us. And that's what could have happened to Jehoshaphat. But thank God, after that feeling initially of great fear and dread coming upon him, he decided, well, I can't stop here. I've got to do something. And what did he do? He turned to the Lord. There's nothing better you can do than turning to the Lord. The Apostle Paul had a habit of doing this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, listen to what he said. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When I am weak, when I feel my weakest in a situation, actually, I have learned that that's when I'm strongest because then I can trust the Lord because I can't trust myself. When I see what's coming upon me, when I see the odds I'm fighting against, I dare not and cannot trust myself. I have to turn to the Lord, and that's what makes me strong. Look at verses 5 now, right on down to verse 12. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God? You're not just the God. You're not just the great God of the nations and of heaven. But are you not our God? See how personalizing he's making this. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever, that they may dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So listen to what he's saying. He's reminding himself of who God is. 
He's reminding himself of the power of God, the greatness of God, the bigness of God. He's reminding himself about the house of God, the temple of the Lord. And reminding himself about all, reminding God about all those things, he's reminding himself about all those things. The Bible says to magnify the Lord. How do you magnify the Lord? magnify him, think about his greatness and his goodness and his bigness and that lifts him up. And when you magnify the Lord, then he's bigger in your sight and he's greater in your imagination than you ever thought he was. And so this is what Jehoshaphat is doing. He's magnifying the Lord, he's praising God and he's reminding himself of how big God is. And now here are the people of Ammon and Moab, and Mount Seir, the Edomites, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now, third thing that we need to do, and this is what Jehoshaphat did, we need to admit our weaknesses. There is nothing wrong with admitting your weakness. For we have no power over against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been in a position where we've looked out and we've saw what was coming against us and we thought, how in the world can I ever beat this? I have no idea what I'm going to do next. And that's exactly where Jehoshaphat was. He had no idea how to overcome his problem. But what did Paul just say? When I am weak, then I am strong. In Acts chapter 27, it's a long story, but we're just going to pick a little bit out of it. Acts chapter 27, Paul is a prisoner. He had appealed on to Caesar. And now, as a Roman citizen, he had every right to appeal to Caesar. So he's on a boat. He's going to appeal to Caesar in Rome and you know that the ship, there's a tremendous storm rose up and the ship was being lashed by gales and it was awful. And uh, in the midst of all of this in verse 9, Now when much time had been spent, the sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. And this tells us the time of the year it was and it was around about October time and it was a very difficult time to sail. Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Now, he senses something in his spirit, beyond what he can see in the storm, and it was a horrible storm. But he senses something in his spirit. Something's moving within him. And he says, Folks, I can see disaster ahead here. 
not just of the ship, but also of our lives. Now, I hadn't got the full picture just yet. God was, was going to give him the full picture in a moment or two, but he just hadn't got it quite yet. But he knew there was really serious, tremendous trouble ahead. He could sense that in his spirit. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship more than those things spoken by Paul, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in. The majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. When the south wind blew softly, when, whenever it seemed that natural circumstances had changed, it seemed a good time now to go and to sail. What a disaster this was going to be, but that's what they felt. But not long after that, a tempestuous wind, headwind, rose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under a shelter of an island called Clara, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When we had taken on board, they used and when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on citrus sands, they struck sail and were so driven, and because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard and our own, with our own hands. Now when the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, and all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. So things has really gone from bad to worse. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Now note this, Do not be afraid, Paul. He had every reason in the natural to be afraid. He already had felt before this that the ship was going to be lost and lives were going to be lost. So as he was facing this particular battle in the natural, he had every cause to be afraid. That's why the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. If an angel of the Lord says to you, don't be afraid, you can be sure there's a reason to be afraid in the natural. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, for I believe, God, that it shall be just as it was told me. Howbeit, however, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, if you were to read on down through there, you would see that things, before they get better, they get ten times worse. Before they get better, they get ten times worse. Even though God had spoken, and thank God he had heard the voice of God, this is what was going to keep them going. And if you were to read that whole story, you'll see that Paul began to direct operations. Now they were listening to him because what he said was coming true. But right now at the moment, even after he had prophesied, even after he had spoken the word of the Lord, even after he said, this is what God is saying, the storm got worse. Have you ever prayed and you felt you got a promise from God and then your battle got worse? The storm got worse you were in instead of better? That's when you need to hold on to the promise of God. That's when you need to hold on what God told you in the light, don't doubt it in the dark, as somebody said. 
And so Paul holds on to that. And if you read the story and you read it on down, you'll see that every single one of them, everyone without exception, all made it safe to land. You say, well, Paul looked pretty strong in that story. Well, he was afraid. Because the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. And who wouldn't have been afraid in the midst of that storm? Zechariah 4 and 6 says, It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Darius I, he opposed the rebuilding of the temple. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the priests, they were going to rebuild the temple, and Darius I was greatly opposed to it. But God said to them, it's not going to be done by might. It's not going to be done by man's power. It's going to be done by my spirit. And if you read on down in Zechariah 4, you'll see the promise was that this mountain would be removed. And the mountain was Darius I. He was the opposer. And God says, this mountain will be removed. It will become as a plain. It will be no longer there. And if you read on through the story and you know the history, that's exactly what happened. And so, never be afraid to admit your weakness. But having admitted your weakness, make sure that you've turned to the Lord. And make sure you're trusting. This is the next part. You're trusting the Lord for the answer. We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. See, that's what makes the difference, doesn't it? All of us has been in the situation where we didn't know what to do. We hadn't got the answer to the problem we were facing, but our eyes were on the Lord. And it's always wonderful when you get your eyes off the battle and the problem and get your eyes on the Lord who is the answer. In Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. In 123 Psalm. Unto you I lift up my eyes. O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters and the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Isn't that a lovely psalm? We're in the midst of your battle and your struggle, whatever it may be, you keep your eyes on the Lord. You look for his hand. See what it says? Behold, as the servants look to the hand of their masters, and the eyes to the maid, the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. 
So you look for God's hand. You say, God, I'm looking to you to see what you're going to do because I have no idea what to do in this situation. So, Lord, you're going to do something. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. In Psalm 25, 15, the eyes, my eyes, are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. You have to trust the Lord for the answer. Now, it's a wonderful thing, as good as it is to keep our eyes upon the Lord, I think it's an even more wonderful thing when you realize that His eyes are ready on you. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto His cry. So as much as we're looking to the Lord, never forget that during all of your struggle and all of your battle, his eyes is on the righteous. He sees exactly where you are. He sees exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're facing. He knows exactly what you need because his eye is always over the righteous. Sometimes we look for him and we can't sense him. We can't see him. We can't feel him. But thank God in the midst of all, even all those times, his eye never leaves us. His eye is over the righteous. Any good parent watches their child, don't they? We've got a wee boy staying with us at the minute. He's only 10 months. We family and he's in everything. Once they can crawl, you better watch out because they're in every drawer. They're everywhere they can find. And everything goes into the mouth at that age, doesn't it? And so what does the mommy and daddy do? Keeps her eye on the little boy. They're always pulling them back. and No, 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 don't touch that. <laughs> but it's just natural curiosity for a child, isn't it? But the parent's eyes are always on the child. So, number five. You've got to believe that you can win in the battles of life. Verse 13 of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, they stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, or he prophesied literally, listen all of you, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel, and you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Glory to God. 
Isn't it wonderful when the Lord is with you? Notice in verse 15 and 17, twice, twice the prophet spoke the words, do not be afraid nor dismayed. So that shows you where they were at that time, wasn't it? Humanly, naturally, they had every reason to fear and be dismayed. But the prophet of God says, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Verse 17, position yourself, stand still. Now that's a wonderful prophecy, isn't it? Here the prophet has sent them, look, calm down, relax. Everything's going to be all right. Don't be afraid. Don't get upset. Don't get dismayed. The battle's not yours, it's the Lord. Go out and then position yourselves and stand still and then see for yourselves the salvation of the Lord. That's a wonderful word from God, isn't it? Hmm? But they still had to go and do it. <laughs> they still had to go and do it. They still had to go out and position themselves. <laughs> they still had to do it. And oftentimes we get scriptures or you get a prophetic word and all the rest of it, but you've got to face the enemy. The battle's still there to face and you've got to go out and face it. And that's exactly what they had to do. But you've got to know that you're going to win in the battles of life. And even though it may take a bit of courage, even though it's going to take some faith, even though it's going to take some obedience to do that, but in your heart of hearts, the Lord has spoken, and you're going to trust Him that you're going to win this battle that you're going to come through with victory in Jesus' name. Amen? And then, and this may be the hardest part of all, then you've got to give God the glory in advance. Ah, now let's just read on a little bit here. We're almost finished. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his, head, with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed themselves before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will prosper. Believe God's word. In their case, what God had just spoken through the prophet. Believe the Lord your God, you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. And as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. <laughs> Nothing had happened yet. The three armies are still setting themselves in array. 
A blow hadn't even been struck yet. And they had to go out and face that, singing as they went out. Praising the Lord as they went out to face the battle. In other words, giving glory to God before the battle has even been won. Now that is not so easy to do, is it? Hmm? Don't look at me all religious looking this morning. Because I know what you're like. You're exactly like me. And it's not so easy to do, is it? It's easy to do afterwards. When the victory's won. But before the battle's even fought, it's difficult, isn't it? And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. He had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill them and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So in other words, God's caused something to happen in the midst of these great armies where they turned against each other and fought each other and were slain each other. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And there were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, as they assembled in the valley of Berakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Berakah, or the Valley of Blessing, until this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat in the front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was in all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for as God gave him rest all around. Now after they saw the great victory, after they had won the battle, then they came with singing and with instruments to the house of God. And I can imagine there was a tremendous wave of praise and worship we got before God, thanking Him for what He has done. But it didn't require one ounce of faith. It didn't require one ounce of courage or one ounce of obedience to praise the Lord after the victory had been got. The thing that impresses me here is not that praise time there, it's the praise time before the victory was got. That's the impressive part. When they went out marching with the singers shouting, the mercy of God endures forever. And they went out to face overwhelming odds. In spite of all of it, they went out singing. And that's giving God the glory in advance before the battle has even been fought or won. So really in conclusion, Jehoshaphat if you sum all of that up, simply put, Jehoshaphat did three things, didn't he? He prayed, he praised, and he positively professed the goodness 
and the mercy of God. He prayed, he praised, and he positively professed. And when he did all of that, then they had a tremendous victory. And then the Lord gave them peace and quiet around about them. Where are you today? What battle are you facing? Is there something in that story that you can look to and say, Lord, help me do that. Help me see that. Help me live that. Help me, Lord, speak that and get the victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin's going to come and do communion for us.